wonderful time, the worship and amazing love of God we were singing and um, Charles Wesley writing that, one of our theological and musical fathers and uh, the brother of John Wesley, which I'm going to talk about a little bit today. Dr. James Emery White, who is a pastor and professor in North Carolina, um, in his book, Serious Times, he speaks of his trip to uh, London, and he was looking for the house of John Wesley. And he was in a pub. I kind of have the GPS up here so you can kind of see um, that this house is there. And if you can see well, you can see around uh, where the little ping is, a little pin, how many restaurants and pubs there are around it. So he's looking for the home of John Wesley. John Wesley, uh, in the 1700s, started this revival. And it wasn't just a revival of people um, just saying we believe in God. But it began in the church and got outside of the church. And got into the hearts of the people and into the community. The John Wesley revival that happened would spread to America. And a huge part of that revival resulted in the abolition of slavery in Britain. So huge, very important for our history. So he's here at this, this pub in London. He's looking for the home of John Wesley. And he asks his server, he said, do you know where the home of John Wesley is? And he says, who? John Wesley, emphasizing the last name. Uh, never heard of him. Let me ask around for you. He goes and asks three of the other servers and some of the regulars at the counter. And he comes back and says, nobody's ever heard of him. Uh, who is he? The founder of Methodism. No clue what that is. A Christian leader who started a revival here years ago, and at the word Christian, the guy kind of shook it off. Christian, you're not going to find that sort of thing here. It turns out that Dr. White was only a block away from John Wesley's home. The church, I share that with you this morning is because what we see is that people easily forget history. They even forget Christianity. And we are a very forgetful people. It's amazing to think that John Wesley would have such a great impact in, in Britain, in Europe, and also in our own country. And just a few hundred years later, he is easily forgotten. He is mostly known in Christian circles today. But church, humans are very forgetful when it comes to history. But oftentimes, people at large are ignorant of history because they've not been taught it. They've, been, they've not been taught the reality of what has happened. They've not been taught the things that have happened in the past, regardless if they're good or bad. So our duty as Christ followers is be, to be in the business of reminding and, what I would say, reteaching. That we are re-instructing a society that has long forgotten God and Christian history. Now, rem remembering and remembrance and reminding is found throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament. I have a few verses here I want to share with you this morning. The book of Jude 1.5 says, Now I want to remind you, important, although you already once knew it fully. And so our duty as Christians is to continually remind people of the faith and the things that we believe. Second Peter 1, 2, the Apostle Peter says, There's, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. The point is, is that you know these things, but our duty is to continue to remind God's people of how we're to live as Christians. Um, John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit 
whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit, part of his calling, part of his duty is to remind us of the things that Jesus has said. The Apostle Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter, I want to remind you of the gospel. And I've always found that fascinating that Somebody would have to remind a church of what the gospel is, but that's our calling as God's people. This has been an important part of the people of God since the times before Christ. God commanded these things, that we are to teach these things, that we are to remember them. We are not to forget. Now, church, I have a few verses I want to share with you today. We're going to be um, at the beginning here in Deuteronomy chapter um, I have chapter 1, but it's actually chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and then verse 12. If you know the story of God, God has created all things. There's a fall, and um, he floods the earth because of wickedness. And he starts over, basically, with Abraham and starts a people. The people are in bondage in Egypt over time. God sends Moses to rescue the people to, to speak as God is the deliverer and sending Moses to lead the way. They come into the promised land. They're supposed to go into the promised land, and they don't have enough faith. They're in the wilderness for a long period of time. And God has given them all the these rules and regulations and how to re keep remembering him. The generation of people who had no faith has died and the time has come for them to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy basically means the second giving of the law. They're repeating it. They're reminding the people as they're preparing. God tells Moses to tell the people this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, when you see that, you see the Lord, when it's in caps in the text, typically in your Bible, that means Yahweh. The Yahweh, our God, Elohim, is the, the Lord is one. We see that God is one, but the word Elohim is actually, the word there can be looked at as a plural word. And a lot of people believe this is speaking to the Trinity. The Trinity is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Basically, you are to ever see the words of God. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then take care, church. Least you forget the Lord. He's telling us that you have to do everything possible to know these things, to remember these things, but take care, least you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Teach so we don't forget. Let's pray together this morning. Father God in heaven, we love you and we thank you for this time just to celebrate what you have done. Lord, we thank you that you are not a God that is far off, you are up close and personal. Lord, that you are involved in our lives, the ministry, you use people on earth who are fallen, who are saved now, who are holy people to go and share the good news. And I pray today that we are a people that are not forgetting, that we are a people that remember you, that remember your teachings, that remember your calling on our life and the mission you have given us here in Casper. And Lord, I pray today that your spirit would speak clearly to us, Lord, that we would step out of our comfort 
Uh, Lord, that we would be a people that want to educate our children. That there is an education process, not a continual vacation from the mission. And Lord, that the, go- the word, your word, goes out mightily. Lord, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we become the disciples you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Now church, we have a rich Christian legacy. I mean, I just love walking into the fellowship hall and thinking about all the men and women who have served over the years to, to make Christ-like disciples, to share the good news of Jesus in Casper, uh, to do the mission of God. And the fact that you are here today is because someone was willing to share the knowledge of God with you. Now, I want you to begin to think about that. I'll share it a lot, that the reason you're here is that somebody involved in church was willing to bring you to church, invite you to church, bring you to a vacation Bible school, to kids quizzing, whatever it may be, or a neighbor stepped across the, walked across the yard and invited you to church. One way or another, people are involved. You are here because someone was willing to share the story of God with you. And that should be a convicting message to us that if I have received the good news, if somebody shared it with me, I should be willing to share it with others. And the first thing I want you to see today is this good news has been passed down. And just so you know, legacy means this, uh, passing down something of value to another generation. That's all it means when we say we want to have a legacy. We want to have a life that has value or meaning, but we also want to pass it down to someone else. It's like leaving money to another generation. We are leaving this great message. It has been left to us. We want to continue in this great work. And the first thing I want you to see that it takes biblical history. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 12. Then take care, lest you forget the Lord. The most interesting thing that I've seen in in doing ministry over the years and, and watching how God has moved is some of the most blessed people are the most forgetful. I look back at my life and and the situation we had in growing up that we didn't have it all. We had some things and not everything, but it kept us dependent on God. You know, we had to trust in God when Jessica and I were starting out. We were living paycheck to paycheck, but it will teach you to pursue God and just want more of him. But some of the most blessed people are the most forgetful. I would say our country is a people who are forgetting God. In this text here, we see that we're not to forget God and what He has done. He did these things in the past. There's a foundation for continually educating people to believe in Christ, and namely, children. A huge mission of the Scriptures is to pass on the good news to children. Now, this includes new believers as well, anybody of any age, of course, but the instruction is if you believe, you need to teach the kids that's one of the reasons we begin to we want to invest in children's ministry here because the older someone gets, the least likely they are to believe and change. Most people who are saved began to believe at a young age. Amen. We believed as children. We were baptized at a young age, and everything that we do as Christians and parents must be tethered to an authentic history. People are erasing real history. They're turning it into. Um, mythology. They've made mythology truth and made truth mythology today, and we have to be a people that believe and teach authentic history. Our children and new disciples need to be aware of history, origin, failures, triumphs, all the ways God has moved in our lives. Now, over the years, I've gathered all kinds of quotes and things, and I want to share a few with you this morning. Francis Bacon said, histories make men wise. 
The more I watch the news and what is happening in our culture and even in church is that people have no clue what has happened in history, yet they'll, they'll reference history and they'll twist history. But true history makes men wise. Cicero, a Roman citizen, to be ignorant of what happened before you were born is to remain a child always. We need to know what has happened in the past. We need to know what happened before we were born. We must continually remind our children about what God has done for us. I've been encouraging this for years. If you have not told your children your testimony, they need to know. You need to tell them this is the way I was living. If someone shared the gospel with me, God moved, I repented, and I believed. You don't have to share every single detail, but your children need to know that God has changed your life. Again, you've heard this said many times before. Those who fail to learn history are doomed to repeat it. If we don't learn from it, if we don't pass the test, if we don't pass it on, we are doomed to repeat it. We are seeing this happen, play out in our lives. Now, something interesting happens in the the life of the Hebrew people. They've seen God work mightily. You saw that they were instructed to pass down these things, these commandments. Do not forget these things. You come to the book of Judges. It says this in chapter 2. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. In my mind, I would think that that's impossible. How could that even happen? They saw the plagues. They saw how they were delivered. They saw water spread and walked across on dry land. They took the land. God delivered them. Imagine, there's no warfare in history where people just walked around a, a castle and it was destroyed. Except in the biblical history, of what we, that, is not, that doesn't happen in warfare. That is something you should remember. They pass over the river. They, go, they take the land. The waters are separate. All these miracles. But here it is. There's a generation who did not know God nor what he had done. Now, why is there a generation who did not know God or what he had done? The parents did not teach them. The people did not tell what had happened in the past. The people had been blessed. And blessed people tend to forget. The parents were there. They just didn't obey God. And maybe it came a time where they were busy at work all week. They came home and it was time to share the scriptures. They were supposed to write it and have it and throughout the house and to talk about it. And there came a time where one of the mom or the dad came home and just said, I'm tired. We're probably not going to do the devotion today. Uh, We need to get away. Um, We're not going to church this week. And before long, it's another time and another time. I've seen this happen in my own family's life. I've shared the story of my father. My father is a pastor now. I honor him. But there was a time in the past where we were worshiping God. We were at church every Sunday, every time the doors were open. And there came a time when my dad said, we're just going to stay home today. And it began to be just reading the scriptures. And before long, we had kind of drifted as a family. It happens, it is real, but we have to teach the good news. We have to pass it on. A good spiritual legacy has faded some in our lives and in our church and in our culture. For several decades, Christians privatized their faith. This is what happened. I'm a Christian. I've gone down, I've said the sinner's prayer. When I go out and do life, I don't demonstrate Christianity. I go to work, I still tell jokes like everyone else, I cuss, I do life like them, my money is still mine, I buy all the stuff that I want, and people have seen this. Christianity got tucked into someone's heart, and in their home, it became private. And when Christianity became private, then secularization increased in the culture. 
Because even if you claimed Christ, there was no impact. There's no one that says, by the way, your life is different. I remember that you were a drunk and now you're not a drunk anymore. That you, you were on the edge of a divorce in your spouse, but you didn't. And I want to know those things. I want to know why you're not living like everyone else. That began to fade in our culture. And the culture has shifted to a very secular culture that has forgotten God very much in mass. There was a major breakdown from what was taught and what was practiced in public by Christians. Stats show that two-thirds of young people leave the church even if they grew up in church. Why would that happen? Now, I don't want to put everything on the parents. Sometimes the churches were not discipling the way they should have discipled. It became about games. It became about fun. It became about secret-sensitive movement. But largely, what was being preached from the pulpit and taught in church, young people saw in their families that they didn't, they, there was a breakdown. They didn't see it demonstrated in mom and dad. They began to see hypocrisy. That is true. They didn't see how it played out in life. In fact, it was not very practical. It was just philosophical that you could say you're a Christian, but it has no impact on your life. I remember reading an article years ago that a church reported 90% of young people leaving their church. 90%. Uh, we, we saw that that was happening in church. My brother started a college ministry years ago because he saw friends leaving the ministry, leaving church, and they created a college ministry to grab some people back and we got engaged in that later, and we were uh, getting people to stay and connect and serve and become leaders, and we were retaining 75%, which I thought was great. However, it is a band-aid effect if you're, on, if you're not discipling. Now, you can get people together again, and you can hold a ministry, but are you discipling them and passing down the things of God? Church, we must teach our children even when they are resistant. We must lead by example. We must teach I, I think that thing probably affects me the most as a dad and as a husband because I want to be uh, a good father. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good pastor and all these things. And I've always wanted my kids to see an authentic Christian. But I fall short. We all fall short. But even in our failings, we should go to our kids and say, you know what, I made a mistake today. You saw me lose my temper. You saw me do something I shouldn't have done. You saw me flip off somebody in Casper because I, you know, they cut you off. 30 miles an hour. People are in such a rush here. It's 30 miles an hour. Just what rush is there? And the thing is, is that they see this breakdown. And if you do do that and they see it, say, I'm sorry. That's not the way of Christ. Forgive me. And, and set an example of forgiveness. Set an example of I've made a mistake that I'm trying to do what God has called us to do. Here it is. We have to live out the greatest commandment. It says it here in Deuteronomy that you must love the Lord God with all. And we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is huge for us. What we have done is we've kind of compartmentalized God into just the heart. Uh, to love, I love God in my heart. I received Him in my heart. It just has no other effect. But you're to love Him with all your mind as well. That we are to be learning about the things of God. That it is to affect our strength, our might, our very soul and everything. So wherever you go, people should see a God follower. That you are a legitimate Christian. In fact, we should have a fresh start today. You should say, you should think and review your life. And are my coworkers, are my friends, are my neighbors seeing a legitimate Christianity in my life? And if I've made a mistake, there's nothing wrong with going to someone and saying, you know what? I've not been living this. I've been inviting you to church. You've not been coming. And I realize I've not been living this out the right way. Forgive me. I'm going to start fresh today. 
Lord, forgive me. But we have to live out the greatest commandment. Church, young people need to be taught the truth. And we must practice what we preach. We must really show people this is real. I am saved. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. I'm a part of God's kingdom, not the world system. Let's fast forward a few hundred years from the time of Moses to the time of Christ. Jesus has spent three and a half years with his disciples. He has died on the cross. He rose again. He is being worshipped. It's fascinating in Matthew chapter 28, it says, and some they were worshiping him. He is the resurrected Christ, but it still says, and some doubted. But church, we need a biblical Christianity. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Oftentimes this is shared in a mission service about going and making disciples. And there's a portion here I want you to see that is often forgotten. So Jesus says, go th- therefore and make disciples of all nations. By the way, you cannot change people. You cannot make people be saved. God does that. But we are to be in the business of making disciples. It is a lot of work. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The disciples knew that Jesus died on the cross. It is a historical reality. They saw him alive. He was resurrected. You know, it's interesting because Paul says there was 500 people that saw Jesus alive, and some are still alive to this day as he is writing the New Testament. So there was good evidence of the resurrection as they're even writing the Scriptures in the New Testament. But what does he tell them to do? He tells them to go and make disciples, which means to make learners. The Old Testament, teach them. Teach them to obey. Let them see it in your life. When you sit down, when you do life together, let them see these things. And it says here, I want you to see this. This is often missed. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. We're to be in the business of teaching everything Jesus has said. Everything he has done. Not just say a sinner's prayer, then you're saved. It's that you say that you believe Christ. He comes into your life. You are born again. Now there's a work to do. We are to live like Christ, be obedient to his teachings. We are to teach Christians to be obedient, observant of all his teachings. There is what in church history is called orthodoxy, theology. The things that are true of Christianity. If you deny these things, you're not Christian. Like the virgin birth. The resurrection, that Jesus is God. When people begin to deny these things, they they may not be Christian at all. There's orthodox things that we are to teach. But there was something that is long forgotten, something they called orthoproxy. And it's the application of the things we believe. And today we want to say, yes, I believe that. But we must live it out. It must be practical. It must be lived where people can see it. As we begin to close today, church, I, um, I have... A story I want to share, but as we do, I want to just to tell you that a lasting legacy involves you and me. It involves many people. If you have a moment after the service today, sometime today, we have a table out there and a book of all the people, all kinds of people who have done ministry over the years. And the Fellowship Hall pastors and their wives and family and some of the pictures and the years that they served, over a hundred years. But God uses people. A lasting legacy involves you, our church family, involves me and my family to continue the message. 
So how do we leave a lasting legacy? One, we must combine the greatest commandment, the love of the Lord God with all and our neighbor, neighbor as ourselves, and the Great Commission to go and make disciples, teaching them to be obedient to everything Jesus has commanded. Loving God, loving neighbor, making disciples. I'm going to ask Jay and the worship team to come at this time as we prepare to close. And I was thinking about John Wesley and how the world has forgotten, many have forgotten John and, and Charles Wesley. And I came across a story I wanted to share with you. Dr. J. Edwin Orr, who was a historian of revival, was uh, a professor at Wheaton College, a lecturer. And in 1940, he took a group of his students to England to look at the historical sites and places. And while they're on their tours, they make it to John Wesley's home, one of the rectories that he lived in. And they're touring this home, they're looking throughout, and it would be a typical home that you would expect to have been from the 1700s, they're looking at all the decor. But the last stop of the tour was John Wesley's bedroom. And as they came into the room, they were looking at the bed, and they looked to the side of the bed, and they saw these two marks in the carpet beside the bed. And one of the students said, what, what are these? And the person giving the tour said, that's where John Wesley used to kneel for hours in prayer praying for God to revive England, to do this mighty work in Him, to call out to God that people would live holy, that this thing would work, that people would be saved, that they would live out their faith. With the tour would draw to an end, and the professor was back in the bus, and the students was in there, and he was looking across the bus, and he recognized one of the students wasn't there. So he went back in, and he's looking around, and he comes back to John Wesley's room, and there's a young man praying, and kneeling where John Wesley was praying and kneeling and he was praying out loud fervently do it again Lord Lord would you do it again would you do it again in me and the professor walked over to the young man put his hand on his shoulder and said Billy it's time to go we have to go and at that point Billy Graham stood up and followed the professor out of the room and went back to the bus and church, I share that with you today because we would all say we know who Billy Graham is. Not everybody knows who John Wesley is or Charles Wesley. And Billy Graham, we know that God used him mightily in our country to win, to speak to millions, to share the gospel around the world, that many were saved through his ministry, many that I know that our churches were affected by this revival that took place. But as we close today, church, I want to have a similar calling for us that we would kneel and ask God, God, would you do it again? Would you do it again and, and do it in me? Like you did with simple John Wesley and Charles Wesley, with, with Billy Graham and others before us. So church, if you would, we're going to open the altars today. I'm going to ask you to stand. and We're going to sing and we're going to pray. And would you come forward and just ask God, God, would you come and, and do it again in me?